0: Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to experience the Gut Check Project, talking science, health, and innovation that you can actually use. But this isn't just another health show. No, no, we're here to have fun and make your time enjoyable. And you like to have fun, right? Well, while you are enjoying yourself, know that even though the GCP covers some health topics with healthcare pros, we are not your doctors. So use our show to entertain your mind and not for medical advice. And now, here are your hosts of The Gut Check Project, Dr. Ken Brown and Eric Rieger.
1: Hey, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family, welcome to another episode of the Gut Check Project. I'm your host, Eric Rieger, joined by this awesome co host, Dr. Kenneth Brown. Ken, what's happening?
2: Well, what's happening today is we've got a little bit of a sciencey podcast, but if you are somebody that has an actual physical brain, then you're <laughs> going to absolutely want to hear this podcast because this is some new information that is very exciting and it's all about protecting your brain. So that's
1: what we're going to talk about today. So if you have a physical brain, just like he said, an actual physical brain, please be sure to like and share this podcast. You can find us on Rumble, Spotify, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, as well as some parts of YouTube, et cetera. Rumble, Locals, did you say those? Oh, Locals, yes. Of course, Locals. uh, GCP Raw is on Locals, where you can find some hidden content, and we may have some of that in this episode today as well. But, uh, Ken, so... What's going on? We haven't been back in the swing of things because as we wrap up summer, you've got things going on with your yeah. family. I've got things going on with mine. Tell us about it.
2: Well, I just came back from San Diego with my daughter, Carla. We were at the National Hardcore Championships. Very proud of her. It's a week long. She played very good. And it's always great to go to the highest level so that you can see the best in the country. Like these girls are turning pro and going to the best D1 schools. And it's really fun. And Carla did really good in it. And so it's exciting. So. Um, Love being able to spend time like that, and I I was disappointed. Um, I uh, did—I missed this killer concert that I wanted to go to called Street Meal. It was a reunion tour. What did it look like? You went to it. I went
1: to this concert.
2: Oh, my gosh. I heard it was amazing. I actually had friends that went to it, and they're like, the drummer makes the guy from Rush (laughs) look like a kindergartner. Then they weren't
1: there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what have you been doing, Eric? <laughs> uh, so, here recently, the boys, uh, uh, Gage and his family, granddaughter, of course, and uh, Mac and his girlfriend and I, we all got together. Uh, it just so happens that Gage and Mac and I are in Street Meal as a cover band. We had a blast. We all played together, uh, honestly, as a dad. Having two sons who want to get up and jam with their dad was love a blast. And we, and we had several other people. Uh, we did... Nineteen or twenty cover songs. We had about a hundred and ten minute set. It, it was it was a lot of fun. We had you know a few hundred people who were who were there probably really to see the band after us, but that's not what's important. <laughs> that's not what it's that's important. Not what's important. We we had we had a great time, and then we left. Had a, uh, a fam vacation in uh, Tahoe. We hadn't you know it's just getting everybody on the same page. Uh, kids going back to back to college. Uh, other kid raising raising a daughter. There's It's hard to get everybody on the same page, but it was, it's great. It's really what life is about. You, you don't live to work, you work to live. And so that was, uh, we were doing some living.
2: Yeah, definitely. You know what would just completely suck? What was that? Something that happens to millions and millions of people and appears to be happening more and more and more. What's that? These stories that we just shared Mm -hmm. at some point in your life, Gage comes up to you wearing his street meal shirt. And not you, because this won't happen to you, but it could be that you not only don't recognize a street meal shirt, you don't recognize the person talking to you. Correct. And I've always said that one of my massively transformative goals would be to protect the brain and stop this epidemic of dementia so that you work to live and that, li- that life lived becomes memorable And those are the most valuable things in your life at one point are these memories and sharing and talking to grandchildren and great grandchildren and so much of this generation. And unfortunately we're kind of dealing with it with my mother-in-law now that it, if you have, um, you know, if dementia starts setting in, it's, it's, it's not just tough on life, but it's like, wow, the 75 years that you had are kind of a fog. And then the most recent memories are, you know, You're losing those. disjointed. Yeah. And what we're going to talk about today is to prevent that so that you engage can talk about this till you're 112, 120, whatever it is. Right. That's why I said, if you have a physical brain, I said physical brain also, because when I was going to say, if you have a brain, then I thought, man, people say that, like, if you're doing something stupid, you are like, don't you have a brain? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, you gotta have a physical brain. Yeah. I mean, if that brain doesn't work, that's not, it's not our fault. I don't know if this can fix it
1: maybe these are really good points but uh when you bring up dementia because that's what you're alluding to uh, having dealt with it with some in my family and then other friends who've dealt with it with their their parents uh, or even even people who have had neurogenitive decline uh from trauma cte oh
2: this is we're right in the wheelhouse
1: it's it's all comes down and i think that we're Obviously going to talk about it, but this is chronic inflammation that goes unchecked. The body doesn't have the correct defenses. And what can we do about it?
2: This is exactly. And the reason why I'm excited about this is an article was just published and um, the, the article is titled... The Neuromodulatory Effects of Flavonoids and Gut Microbiota Through the Gut-Brain Access, published in the journal's Frontier, Frontiers in Cellular and Infection Microbiology. Now, don't let the title fool you. I mean, it's not as simple as it sounds.
1: Yeah. It's it's unfortunate it was so short.
2: I know. It's such a dumbed-down title of it that actually this is a really deep dive into the gut-brain access and how your microbiome can protect your brain.
1: So, um... For everybody, let's just start and we'll keep it all remedial. That way that I can keep up, everybody else can keep up. Uh, gut-brain axis is the connection between our guts and our brain and how what we eat can actually help the way that we think, move, everything else, perceive. And then when you start talking about microbiome, you're talking about simply the constitution of bacteria, the the, the biodiversity inside of the colon which basically function as the tools to break down the food that we eat to turn into the beneficial products throughout the rest of our body.
2: thousand percent. The microbiome is sort of the new frontier in, mezo- in, in medicine. I was listening to Andrew Huberman said something that there, the microbiome is so important and there's so many more genes and cells in our microbiome that is it possible that we are merely a vehicle for this microbiome? We're actually the host of... This, like, we're the the vehicle to let them live. Yeah. Who knows? You can look at it two ways. But I look at it as a synergistic relationship. Because if I treat my microbiome well, it treats me well. Correct. All right. So a little bit of background. We know that there are many studies showing that flavonoids offer neuroprotective effects through direct and indirect mechanisms. And our microbiome affects our brain through producing bioactive metabolites. And we're going to get into each aspect of this. If your microbiome is not optimal, then the lack of these metabolites has been linked to obesity, diabetes, heart disease, autoimmune issues like Crohn's and colitis, multiple sclerosis, and the list goes on
1: and on and on. Everything you're saying has a root in inflammation. Every single thing that you're saying has a root. In chronic inflammation, it's unchecked. I just, and I'll probably say that a lot during this episode, mm-hmm. but it's important to remember because, uh, unfortunately, certain foods that are now more available, whether they're more affordable or they just happen to be at the fast food restaurants that you start at or that you stop at to, to grab a quick bite, sometimes the stuff that looks healthy on a shelf, it has things in there, unfortunately, seed oils, et cetera, that drive inflammation, and chronic inflammation, and we're seeing a spike, and it's not coming from nowhere. It's not just because, I, I don't know. It's not just because it's time for that to happen. We're eating and consuming foods that are driving inflammation, and they, they lead to things. They
2: lead to chronic disease. Yep. So there's, we could talk about all those other things, but now there is newer evidence mm-hmm. showing that an unhealthy microbiome can lead to Alzheimer's. Parkinson's, dementia, and even MS, as I had mentioned. And as you will see, it also plays a huge role in depression and motivation. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about how to prevent all of that by keeping your microbiome healthy and its relationship to the brain. So this is more of a true gut-brain situation. Let's do it. All right. So first thing is feeding your microbiome. All these terms get thrown around. So what happens is when you eat fiber and prebiotic polyphenols, our microbiome will ferment these and they produce bioactive compounds. Big, broad term. They produce things and molecules that your body uses, bioactive compounds. And by now, most people realize our microbiome affects our health by digesting these complex carbohydrates and then they modulate nutrients and things get absorbed in the intestine. But what many people don't realize is that our gut bacteria also produce vitamins and neurotransmitters that control both intestinal permeability and brain permeability. Mm-hmm. Leaky gut, leaky brain. So the bacteria in our bodies can actually affect the brain directly through some indirect ways that can not only lead to, to, I'm sorry, it, it can affect the brain directly, and it can affect it through indirect ways that can actually lead to brain disorders, and these things can result in mood and behavior changes. And so essentially, when you have a gut bacterial metabolite, good or bad, it can indirectly affect your mood over long term. It can directly cause inflammation. And so this is like the short-term process that's actually happening. But most people think that the gut-brain access is only through the vagus nerve, but it's actually much, much more complex than that. The key is basically to feed your microbiome what it wants and what it needs. And the balance of microorganisms in the gut, meaning the microbiome, can be restored through food but also with proper supplementation because we can see that it's the amount of these molecules that go in. So this particular article is novel because they have shown that one of the most important things to improve your microbiome is through these molecules called flavonoids. So this is directly looking at flavonoids over fiber, over other molecules to feed your microbiome. So flavonoids are basically the thing that your microbiome can use to do beneficial things for your health.
1: Okay. Can you just give us a quick relationship between the word... Flavonoids and polyphenols, and maybe even tannins, only because these may be some crossover.
2: You are a step ahead of me.
1: So, what is a flavonoid?
2: Because when you read these articles, people go, Oh, um, I would see TV ads, you know, loaded with proanthocyanidins, loaded with antioxidants, flavonoids for this and that. So, when we talk about polyphenols all the time, right, we use the word polyphenol all the time, but you know, what is this term? It's a little bit confusing because. Polyphenols are just this large family of complex molecules that make vegetables and fruits colorful. Mm -hmm. We've said it before. It's what makes the Mediterranean diet so healthy for you. When we look at all these other diets out there, the one unique thing about the Mediterranean diet is the amount of polyphenols that you actually get compared to other more restricted diets. That's why they believe it's such an important diet for overall health. Now, a flavonoid is a large molecule of smaller phenolic compounds put together. So you have small phenolic compounds. They are put together like a building block into a flavonoid. So now this flavonoid is really powerful because it's got all these other phenolic compounds in it Mm -hmm. that we know that eventually our microbiome can break them down into smaller pieces and then those get used. Now, when you take a flavonoid, and you put it together with a bunch of other flavonoids, this is called a proanthocyanidin. And that term is used a ton in marketing because you'll see it for pomegranate juice and things like that. We are loaded with proanthocyanidins. All that is is flavonoids put together in a builder, in a bigger building box. Then when you take proanthocyanidins and you start putting those together, When you put enough together, you get the largest, most stable polyphenol called a tannin. So when we say the word polyphenol includes this, you know what? It almost feels like a universe, doesn't it? Molecularly. Polyphenols are this universe of these things. And then when you have a star with planets running around it, that's a tiny phenolic compound. Mm -hmm. When you put a bunch of those together... You've got a galaxy. We're going to call that the flavonoid. Mm -hmm. When you take the flavonoid and put them together, then we're going to call that a cluster. And that cluster, thats all those galaxies put together can form a cluster. And then you take a couple clusters together, and now you've got a tannin. So that's the scope of it. Nice. So when we look at this, we know that that probably the most um, effective and complex is tannins. And, of course, we talk about tannins because... Probably the most complex one in the gut is Cabracho, Colorado, which is in Outranteel and in Outranteel Pro. Correct. Which is why I'm so passionate about this because an article like this comes out where it's basically saying that we can affect the brain through the gut. So it's purpose. It's every day we go to work and I get more and more excited about the the stuff that we're doing. So, Well,
1: hey, I just wanted to add just a couple of things just in context uh, and using some other studies that uh, – Gave a good rundown back in 2018 and in 2020 uh, You kind of gave me an idea what we're going to talk about today So I wanted to Mm -hmm. have some refreshers just to address a few things So why do plants have these polyphenols? And the truth is before we use them as humans um, Plants can use polyphenols to protect against reactive oxygenation species Against UV light, parasites and predators and another interesting thing that I learned when I went to the Sequoia National Forest is the tannins in the bark of conifers mm-hmm. are there to protect the sequoias specifically from forest fire and the and they literally the tannins in the in the, the bark of the sequoia theoretically are there to protect them from being burned because the cones that have the seeds Cannot germinate until there's a fire, oh, so really? it's wow. necessary <laughs> for there to be a fire. But in, but the tree, of course, doesn't want to die, and so the forest fire is is completely necessary for the propagation of the sequoia. Oh, that's awesome! And, uh, oh, and and the whole point is is that they have these defense mechanisms in plants, and then of course in animals they continue to do things, but they have to be converted by the microbiome to do that. So anyway, just to kind of put it into context, why why would plants produce polyphenols? It's this. And we are not a plant only podcast. This is just the beneficial aspects of eating these types of plants.
2: Yeah. It's there's other things in plants that I think some health people say that it's that we shouldn't some people say we shouldn't eat them. But what we're talking about is the polyphenols in it. Correct. Which in itself, we're going to get into why it's so beneficial. Now, researchers are always putting out these articles about how flavonoids, like Mm -hmm.
1: quercetin—quercetin
2: is a flavonoid, so is hesperidin—do these things, but the piece that is missing is the bioavailability of these molecules. Right. So, in other words, we take these, but are we getting the full benefit from it? There is some very small, direct effect on our brains by consuming certain flavonoids— Because in certain flavonoids, there's already a small enough flavonoid that maybe a little bit can actually go up and start doing its work without having to go through this metabolic process. So 99.99% of this is not absorbed. And we're at the mercy of our gut bacteria to take advantage of these molecules. So when we talk about all these people saying we want to have a more absorbable version of XYZ, do you though? Because it's the smaller molecules that are actually making the difference. So when we look at even ones that were purported to be absorbed, I then looked at study. Ooh, just whacked myself with my mic. I then looked at studies <laughs> uh, looking at the absorption of those ones that they said were small enough to be absorbed. Mm-hmm. And the bioavailabilities very, very, very poor. Right. So even the ones that they say are being absorbed, it's like 1% of those are actually being absorbed
1: so really kind of points its finger to it's essential for these polyphenols in order to be beneficial to the host the human in this instance has to make its way all the way to the colon where it can then be hydrolyzed utilized broken down chemical bonds broken down by our microbiome and then those products become the benefits and for the science nerds out there polyphenols Typically, just as Ken said, 99.9% aren't absorbed because they're esters, they're, gly- they're, they're glycosides, they are polymers that are not meant for absorption. So it's funny you mention that because there's a big wave of we can have a more bioavailable turmeric or whatever, and that's probably not really where it belongs. It's like using a screwdriver to hammer in a nail. It's, it's the wrong tool at the wrong spot.
2: Exactly. So we know that due to poor absorption, most of these will go directly, almost undigested, to your colon where your microbiome lives. So the, micro, so the microbiome, the gut bacteria, they're going to do two things. Number one, they're going to break down these flavonoids into smaller flavonoids, smaller phenolic molecules mm-hmm. to the point where they can actually break them down into the point where it's an aglycone is the term where those can actually now enter the bloodstream. Okay. Then those go to the liver, where then they get processed further. Then they get sent out into the, into the blood. So it's a very complex process. And then, so that's the first thing. That's one thing that the gut bacteria do. And then the other thing that's equally important, if not more important, is as they're breaking this down, a byproduct are active metabolites, like short-chain fatty acids and butyrate. So ultimately, these molecules are enzymatically converted into other intermediates, but the kicker is you need the right ratio of bacteria to do it. In other words, you need a healthy microbiome. For instance, there's a taxa uh, like uh, bifidobacter, that people always say is a good bacteria, and lactobacillus. They have specific enzymes called beta-glucidases that are meant to specifically break down the flavonoid into smaller phenolic molecules. So that type of bacteria is really good at taking big flavonoids into smaller flavonoids. Mm -hmm. And this allows to enter the bloodstream where it will then go into the liver. Some of the smallest ones can cross the brain directly. Now, these smaller phenolic molecules have been shown to have an anti-inflammatory effect on the brain. So even if we don't have all these metabolites, you're already getting some benefit by just breaking, down, breaking these down into tiny little flavonoid complexes, little, like the smallest phenolic complexes, sorry. Right. And when they pass, they can show a direct effect. So you have this direct effect there. But the others that are not absorbed directly are used to make these bioactive compounds like short-chain fatty acids. Now the beauty is, is that when these flavonoids feed the bacteria— it actually increases good bacteria. So it can modulate what it needs. So if it's like, well, we have so many small phenolic compounds going in, that's the bifidobacter, why don't we raise some acromancia a little bit so that we can get more short chain fatty acids produced. The flavonoids work with the bacteria and the bacteria work back to make sure that we keep everything in check. Mother nature does it best. So it becomes this cycle. Feed the bacteria what it wants, Get the anti-inflammatory molecules what it needs, which in turn creates more bacteria that it needs that it, it should do to keep things. It's a, it's a symphony. It's not, a, it's not street meal band. It's a symphony. <laughs> <laughs> we were definitely not a symphony. <laughs> All right. So now let's get back to inflammation. Okay. Specifically inflammation in the brain. So when we talked about how inflammation can cause diabetes and uh, obesity and all these other things, let's look at it from a brain perspective. Okay. All right. Um, We've said that the root cause of disease is inflammation, and so the root cause of brain deterioration is inflammation. So inflammation will produce inflammatory cytokines, and we talk about these cytokines. We heard so much about it during the pandemic, TNF-alpha, interleukin-6, interleukin-1, and a bunch of others. When these cytokines are floating around, they make tiny little holes in the barrier of the brain called the blood-brain barrier. And once these little holes are made, this allows harmful molecules to actually enter the brain. Once one of these harmful molecules enter the brain, this turns on the brain's first line of self-defense. And it calls for these microglial cells, which are the white blood cells of the brain. hmm and we've done other episodes about the um, immune system and its response to different things—the innate immune system, the adaptive. The brain doesn't use that same system; it uses these microglial cells. See invader, attack invader, and so the what ends up happening is when the microglia run out there and attack these invaders, it'll produce local inflammation, leading to dendritic cell death, and the dendrite is the brain cell. So. When this is going on, cell death and oxidative stress leads to a loss of cholinergic neurotransmitters, which leads directly to poor learning and cognition in the short term, but in the long term leads to
1: Alzheimer's and dementia. We've got to process how this happens. So let's put this in a little bit of context. You said a decrease in the cholinergic activity. Let's just... Summarize it with that. Yes. The way that nerves communicate with each other is acetylcholine. Yep. They have to have it. That is the neurotransmitter. Even if it's a, a, a micro neuron located in your brain, it's inability to transmit that a signal needs to be sent, an action potential to send down to the next neuron, have this thought, have this action, recall this memory, retain this skill, If your brain doesn't have the ability to communicate nerve to nerve, this is where transmission gets lost, memories fade, articulations of movement, muscle memory. It all goes away if it's being destroyed. So just kind of wanted to highlight. That's exactly it.
2: So when we look at these flavonoids and these small, tiny flavonoids, but more importantly, these metabolites, They have a direct neuroprotective effect, and they can do this by actually inhibiting these pro-inflammatory cytokines from being produced in the first place or reducing the oxidative stress that's going on. And something I did not know, they actually help regulate the microglial response. So the microglia gets out there and starts fighting everything. It's like, whoa, hold on. You keep killing everything out here. You're going to kill the surrounding area. We're going to do a little cleanup by working as an antioxidant, do this. We're going to turn off these invaders that are coming in, these inflammatory cytokines. And why don't you take a little break? Because now, spoiler alert, we need to start rebuilding all the shit that you just broke. Yeah. We need to start doing some neuro-regeneration. Can't do that when you're out here in microglia, and you're important. I'm not saying you're not, but you're out here just over overreacting. Microglia is like, we're under attack. Why don't you tell this person to quit eating so much processed food or if they have SIBO to go get their SIBO fixed or something because this leaky brain here, we're losing on all fronts. So you could see that it's always about balance. It's a porous border. It's a porous border. Yeah, Yeah. and the fun part about this is that most of this is not taking a direct uh, effect on the brain, but a lot of it's through an indirect way by breaking down these flavonoids. So it's not a one and done. You take something, oh I just took this and now it's gonna go in and turn off my brain. It's the indirect way that really, really helps. So, how do these flavonoids help heal the brain? Now, different studies have shown that various flavonoids, like one called christen is one. What I am enjoying about this article is that they keep referring to studies and they refer to individual flavonoids where that study is referred. This is more of like a meta-analysis of Uh all kinds of studies. So when they do references, It'll be somebody studied a tiny flavonoid called christen. And so in this particular one, it was called christen. And it was shown that it can decrease inflammatory nitric oxide. Remember that one?
1: Yes. Inos. I- Inos.
2: Inos. And decrease COX-2 expression in the brain. COX-2 is the cyclooxygenase pathway. That's correct. That's what NSAIDs like uh, ibuprofen or and stuff aspirin. block. block. Yeah. Yeah. Aspirin blocks that. Or... Um, biox the selective COX-2 inhibitor that you then get a heart attack because you didn't realize it was causing that. Oh, but they did know it was causing it. <laughs> it was Vioxx, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay. <laughs> We're referring to the big losses Mobic that they went through. Mobic and Vioxx, I think. Yeah. No, I don't think Mobic. Mobic's oh. still out there. Oh, is it? Are they owned by the same company? Never mind. <laughs> Whatever. Um, I was so close to getting a sponsorship deal with Mobic. Room, <laughs> Damn it. All right. So... Another really cool thing is that not only does it help with uh, inflammatory nitric oxide and COX-2 expression, it's been shown to downregulate the inflammatory pathway called NF-kappa-beta, which essentially stops the inflammatory cascade from even happening. So we talk about the NF-kappa-beta, that if that's turned on, it's like a seesaw. Yep. NRF2, if that's up, NF-kappa-beta is down. If NF-kappa-beta is up, NRF2 is down. One produces anti-inflammatory stuff, the other one produces inflammatory stuff. And you need both. You do. In the in the right context. That's correct. If you get infected with something, you want your NF kappa beta turned on. Mobilizing. Let's get some inflammatory cytokines out here. Let's fix what's going on. So so in those there were some also some other studies that showed that it can activate, and this is cool, a pathway called the tropomycin receptor kinase pathway. Wow. I, I had never heard I of it. Haven't either. Yeah. Now this is cool. The Tropomycin receptor kinase pathway helps dendritic branching and improves synaptic connections. Now, this is super geeky.
1: But in, the, in the brain specifically.
2: In the brain specifically. Okay. So I'd never heard of this. But these flavonoids are activating a pathway called the, let's just call it the TRKB agonist or the TRKB pathway. They're, they can actually turn on that pathway. So the, the tropomycin receptor kinase pathway, and this mimics the exact same stuff that BDNF does, uh, brain-derived neurotrophic yeah, factor. Which, yeah. So it runs parallel with it. I had no idea that BDNF had a cousin. And this is a cousin that gets turned on by flavonoids. Super cool. And so what this does is this grows new neurons and promotes new synapse formation. And we always talk about BDNF as being the only thing that can do this. This is another thing that can do it. When we're talking about forming new synapse connections, that comes down to that cholinergic pathway where one dendrite, or I'm sorry, one synapse can jump to another. And this is how you start connecting ideas. This is how you start forming memories into deeper memories. This is how you start integrating everything that you're learning together. Pretty cool.
1: Yeah, 100%. That's... That, so
2: that was, um, I thought that was really interesting. Well, that
1: would explain, though, if, if, if you don't have that ability to do that. Let's say that you can't activate this pathway. This would explain why somebody has with, with dementia. Well, I shouldn't say explain, theoretically explain why someone who has dementia may still hang on to the old memories, the old, the old experiences. Exactly. But they don't have the capacity to, to remember they were in the last room because that new connection they can't form is the not. New connection.
2: Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super interesting. So that was, that's one way to sit there and and look at this. Now let's talk about the real, the the meat of everything. How do these metabolites actually affect our brain? So we've already said that that flavonoids can produce metabolites like butyrate, but they can also produce key neurotransmitters like GABA, serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. And gotta have them all. Gotta have them all. So Let's go through each one really quick, Mm -hmm. how it does it, and what its effect on the body is. Okay. So the first one is short-chain fatty acids. Now, first, short-chain fatty acids act locally where our colon cells use them as fuel to keep the environment healthy. Now, next, they can directly communicate with the vagus nerve, which is the wandering nerve, and anybody that's done any Googling because you have gut issues at some point somebody's telling you how to affect your vagus nerve in one way or another v-a-g-u-s v-a-g-u-s yeah the um although i think paul did a post where he spelled it v-a-g-a-s vegas baby yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> <laughs> creative um the, the, you know what's interesting about short-chain fatty acids when i was When I was in medical school, we thought that it was just a local thing that helped feed the colonocytes. And a few years ago, you and I were in Denver giving a presentation to natural grocers. And one of the dietitians I was discussing these metabolites and she, and I actually said, well, like short-chain fatty acids, they're more local. She's like, well, I I disagree with you on that, but, and she was completely right because when she started looking into it, these things, um, they basically not only help feed the cells, they not only can directly communicate with the vagus nerve, but they can enter the circulatory system. And then that's where they can directly cross the blood-brain barrier and help control neuro-signaling, which ultimately can very quickly control our behavior. So having these short-chain fatty acids travel around is important because when the brain um, is inflamed, these short-chain fatty acids, specifically butyrate is probably the main one doing this, it can actually help control the microglial response and decrease the neuroinflammation and even, I love this, helps get rid of amyloid beta proteins, which are being deposited. Amyloid beta proteins are what actually causes Alzheimer's disease. This work was actually discovered in an animal model where they were reversing Alzheimer's disease by giving flavonoids that produced butyrate And they showed that the butyrate was able to clear out the amyloid plaques.
1: And I could be wrong. I could be completely misremembering this, but CTE, isn't that an aggregate of amyloid plaques or amyloid debris?
2: Everything ultimately kind of comes down to, that's like the scar tissue of the brain. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Anyway, continue.
2: Yeah, so that's so that's fascinating. So that's just an example of short-chain fatty acids. They do way more than that, but the butyrate has been shown in these studies to cross the blood-brain barrier mm-hmm. and help assist the few flavonoids that have gotten through, help assist with the inflammatory control that's happening.
1: So just to kind of a summary, uh, we're talking about the benefits of these short-chain fatty acids, but, it, but let's not lose sight that if you're not feeding the microbiome, the fuel... To make them, or if your microbiome is not populated with the correct type of bacteria to make use of those polyphenols, this is where you end up finding yourself deficient with these tools to protect your brain. So just wanted to kind of recap.
2: 100% gets back to that feedback loop feed it, produce more. For instance, that wouldn't it be fascinating if you sustain? Or your body knows that it's sustained some sort of head trauma. Mm-hmm. But if you're feeding it what it wants, then there's a signal going back. The vagus nerve tells the colonocytes, hey, uh, we something rattled our brain up here. Yeah. Can we have a, a little bit more butyrate? And then there's signaling goes out and goes, okay, who are our butyrate producers? Acromantia, a couple others. Let's step it up a little bit. We need more butyrate production. Let's decrease that neuroinflammation. Okay, let's go. Chop, chop.
1: So we look at a football player. And over time, when they very first started playing football, no helmets. Then they moved to leather and then they moved to the to the shell and then they turned into the plastic shell and then it came to, with the pads. They've made all of these progressive, uh, I guess, engineering things for a helmet to protect the head, to protect the face, but mostly the brain to do all of these different things. So much so now that I think they have helmets with sensors to measure impact, though why with this new information don't we start applying from the inside the repair mechanisms for someone who has sustained repetitive you know head knocks or doesn't just have to be football could be soccer could be anything that your body has endured a head blow give them the fuel and the protection from the inside to do the repair anyway i'm just kind of curious about that
2: curious about it i mean we're Preaching to the choir here. I'm over here just showing you exactly what happens when you essentially have brain inflammation mm-hmm. caused by anything, right? Which is why repeated brain injury results in dementia, Parkinson's. That's the Muhammad Ali thing, where you just kind of watched it progress there.
1: So, and they sometimes they uh, categorize it as an ALS. Oh yeah, manifestation. It's, yeah, I mean, it's it categorized all, in all these different all ways. All neurodegenerative problems.
2: Yeah, I mean, the future I want to see. Is NFL wearing a helmet where it sustains a series of blows throughout the game, and you get done, and then you get a report that says, this is how much entrantil you need to take. You, you took a beating today. <laughs> we, need to get, we need to get a bunch of polyphenols in you. We need to get a bunch of flavonoids. Sure. It's not that far off. I mean, I'm, I'm joking, but really, it should be, you should definitely heal the gut from, you should heal the brain from the
1: inside. I mean, I don't know. Do they measure, is serum measuring uh, samples of uh, uh, short-chain fatty acids, something that could be done, accomplished meaning with a meaningful number? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know I, don't, I don't know how no, I, know it it is.
2: I don't it. know if cells take it in and, and you know, do stuff because you wouldn't know what's actually going on in the brain. Right. And then there's one other thing that these short-chain fatty acids do. They can inhibit NF-kappa-beta that we just talked about. But this is interesting. They can decrease... LPS signaling. LPS is lipopolysaccharide, which is a protein in bacteria. So when bacteria are killed or they die, they release their lipopolysaccharides. Mm-hmm. These can sneak through the gut, go to the brain, create inflammation. Kieran Krishnan uh, of Microbiome Labs discussed this in detail where they now started realizing that LPS signaling was the un was the unknown force to create an inflammatory cascade. And so this is really good news for people with SIBO because we know if you have SIBO, you're probably producing a lot of LPS signaling and you probably have leaky gut already. Now we're looking at a bad situation over time that can affect your brain. So we need something to decrease the LPS signaling. Got it right
1: here. Uh, I think it's it's a smart move.
2: So now let's move into some other stuff that is less known making serotonin, 5-HT. So this is done through converting an amino acid called tryptophan into 5-HT and also melatonin. People don't realize that 90% of the total serotonin is produced in the gut, specifically through enteroendocrine cells within the gut lining. They use this amino acid, and then through an enzyme called 5-hydroxytryptophan, it can convert it to serotonin. Now, the enzyme 5-HT is the rate-limiting step, so that has to be converting. This enzyme can be turned on by upregulating short-chain fatty acids. So short-chain fatty acids can go to the gut, to an enteroendocrine cell, and say, ramp up your 5-HT production. I want to get some more of this tryptophan over to serotonin because my, my brain is getting sad. So let's do this. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So it's this intricate pathway. Now, this signaling to upregulate 5 HT increases the total serotonin in both our gut and our brain. Correct. So it helps with the gut as well. So you think about it: if you have low serotonin, your gut's not going to work right and you're going to feel depressed and anxious.
1: Well, the the gut, your gut health really is a window to the potential of your stable brain health. Yeah, it really is. If you have long-term GI irritability, you probably find yourself a little worried, a little on the edge. I mean, everybody's experienced issues with diarrhea or having the flu for a little while. You just feel like complete shit. But until you finally get regular, you get back to being normal. And I mean, I I had that experience at various points in my life where you've got diarrhea, you don't you don't feel good. Inflammation here is often quite reflective of inflammation up here.
2: So let's say that you are feeling a little down and you're like, you know what? I read that tryptophan, if I take tryptophan, it'll be converted to serotonin. So I'm going to take 5-HT directly or I'm going to try and take some tryptophan and have it converted. Mm -hmm. But you have a shitty diet. It's not going to work. And those enzymes, the 5-HT enzyme is not working very hard because it doesn't have to. Because there's not flavonoids producing metabolites, telling it to pick up the pace. So now you're buying a supplement, but you're not using the power of the microbiome to convert that tryptophan to serotonin.
1: Yeah. Kind of interesting. Isn't it weird also when people are in a more depressive mood where they could be potentially low on serotonin that you almost gravitate towards what people have thrown... Nowadays, I think it's taken on a different connotation, but comfort foods. Yeah. And comfort foods nowadays are typically produced with the foods that are not going to bring you more comfort. They're just going to make you more progressively inflamed. And so you get in a people get in a rut. They don't know how to get out. And so I I, I love this topic because potentially people could be more cognizant, make a different choice. I'm feeling terrible. What can I actually do other than this, this standard choice? So I think this is actually pretty important.
2: Yeah, it's super important. Another neurotransmitter that uh, plays a role through the gut-brain access is making something called GABA. Mm. GABA is gamma-aminobutyric acid. Now, the main thing about GABA, this is a neurotransmitter responsible for inhibiting neuronal excitability. That's right. This is essential for brain health. Um, activation of GABA is formed from the amino acid glutamate. So bacteria can directly take glutamate and form GABA that then gets absorbed and goes up and calms all the excitability down. So the GABA is the neuroinhibitor. I always think of GABA because that's one of the ways that alcohol disinhibits people. Yeah. Because it blocks GABA. Yeah, So you don't have that. You're like,
1: I'm going to say anything I want to say. You're relaxed. (laughs) There's lots of GABA happening in that frontal lobe for sure. Yes. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
2: So you need, you need, next time you uh, start somebody, you you drink a little too much and you said too much, Just go. I really apologize about that. I'm low on glutamate. That's what's happening. Yeah. Is that I'm low on glutamate. It's not that I drank too much, but I was low on glutamate. So it's,
1: uh, there's a, there's a, uh, hypothesis or a theory several years ago that I read about, uh, kiddos that suffer from severe autism. Oh, really! Wow. At all kinds of levels about autism and their lack of ability to produce and make use of enough GABA. You oh. think about the irritability around that. In fact, uh, it was an Associated article that I read after I watched the movie Temple Grandin and uh, talking about her autism and where she found comfort with with different people not able to produce enough GABA to let her not be on edge. Wow. And it at least applied in this sense, you could see the relationship between there, if in fact that's where that's derived from. But
2: uh, I mean, studies have actually shown that when you give flavonoids, if you increase the amount of flavonoids that you're taking, you can have a direct increase in GABA levels, which can positively affect mood and learning through interaction with the GABAergic neurotransmitter makes system. Makes sense, though, right? Sure does. Yeah.
1: I mean, rather than treat a, a a young kid who's been you know diagnosed with one of the diseases like ADHD or something else like that, and you're giving them a modified stimulant, what if the diet were able to change the way their brain could just apply appropriate breaks? Because that's what GABA functions as. That's exactly what it is. It's the break system of the brain. It allows you to brake and maneuver, curve coming up, apply brake, slow down, go into the turn. Rather than overshooting it and, and hitting up on the sides, if you don't have a brake system, it doesn't matter how well your accelerator works. You, you can't just simply power through every turn.
2: Yeah, so. that's, that's exactly right. Um, another super important neurotransmitter is dopamine and norepinephrine. Very important. All right. This is through another amino acid called tyrosine. The process of converting tyrosine into these molecules actually occurs within the gut. And this is through an enzyme called tyrosine hydroxylase. There's a pattern here. Amino, uh, the hydroxylase, amino hydroxylase. Flavonoids actually influence this enzyme directly and indirectly. In an animal study, it was shown that the flavonoid icarin helped brain tissue of perimenopausal depressed rats by significantly increasing dopamine. So I thought that was pretty funny. Depressed rats? Perimenopausal depressed
1: rats.
2: <laughs> 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 this is, uh, wow. Go I know. Ahead. Go I ahead. know. Like, <laughs> could you imagine that person, that, that postdoctorate person in their lab? I
1: mean, I just, I, I don't even know. I don't even know where to, to, to dream up the right scenario and what these rats would be saying. I
2: know. This guy's like trying, he's almost done with his, with his study. And you just walk in, and you're like, Bill, what's wrong? You look down, he's like, ah. That half of the room went from perimenopausal to full-on menopausal. I can't use them. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So dopamine, norepinephrine, um, also super important with our flavonoid production and interacting with enzymes directly yeah. to help with that. And once again, I'm just giving the names of these flavonoids, all these tiny little flavonoids, because these are what the studies were done on. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I, I don't think anybody's really thought about, I don't think that the researchers are thinking about doing, the right hand isn't talking to the left. A Dr. Silvia Molino, who's an expert in large complex polyphenols, is not talking to the guy who's trying to figure out how to help perimenopausal depressed rats. Right. And they're like, well, there was a study that I read. And so it kind of becomes this, a little bit of an echo chamber in this particular space, which is why it's real important for us to talk in the very beginning about what a flavonoid is, what a proanthocyanidin is, what a tannin is because ultimately I think that you don't have to go around and buy 500 different little flavonoids and take them other than eating just a really complex diet. All right, and then finally, we hit on a little bit, but um, increasing BDNF and nerve growth factor. In addition to the serotonin, dopamine, and GABA effects, certain flavonoids have been shown to actually increase BDNF and nerve growth factor, which can directly heal the brain and help grow new synapses. Now, this has been shown to enhance cognitive function in both animal and human studies. Nice. So, this is one where they've actually looked at, so they could measure BDNF and nerve growth factor. And if you give them flavonoids, and we've discussed this on different presentations and talks, where you looking at the microbiome, uh, taking flavonoids, and then exercising increases BDNF significantly. It's kind of a a, a way Wait, to sort what of. What was hack
1: the other that. thing that Perlmutter said? Also, uh, green coffee.
2: So, so that was a tiny little study that ended up becoming several different products. It's green coffee bean extract.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay.
2: That uh, when, uh, when you look at it, it ends up being a flavonoid and it ends up being a small but it was one small study.
1: This is back in, when, when did we meet him? Well, that was a 2016? long time ago, but it was said
2: just like, that's the only thing that does it. It's sort of like, you know, we just learn more and more. It's sort of like when David Sinclair, the only thing that turns on the Sirtuin pathway is resveratrol.
1: Not true. With it, it may have been true at the time though. Just like sure. you said, at the time, that's what they knew
2: Yeah, did it. He, turns was, the, out- he was the
1: first guy doing research exactly.
2: in the Sirtuin pathway. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Turns out it's, it's flavonoids. It's polyphenols. Yeah. It's... A lot of this
2: it's a lot of this everything we're talking about and now it makes sense because yeah. these are not isolated molecules in nature you know oh look at that <gasps> that's a quercetin plant mm-hmm. oh look over there that's an icarin plant that's not how it works right the plant itself is filled with all of these different things you know when we start isolating these molecules out all right so it increases the nerve growth factor um it can direct, it can directly heal the brain Now, this has been shown in the human studies, which is the most important thing about that particular thing, because a lot of these are just animal studies, and now we're really getting into humans. We can start looking at it. All right, so there's a lot to summarize here. Uh, Flavonoids help protect the brain through anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and neuroprotective effects. A very small percentage of really tiny flavonoids can directly cross the blood-brain barrier and decrease inflammation. Flavonoids help improve the microbiome by increasing good bacteria and decreasing bad bacteria. The microbiome uses flavonoids to produce active metabolites like short-chain fatty acids and butyrate. And the gut bacteria can make and regulate serotonin, dopamine, GABA production, as well as BDNF and nerve growth factor. A lot to chew on right there. So, by feeding our microbiome flavonoids, this may help with memory loss, improve learning and guard against diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. It would be tough to take each individual flavonoid as I'm pointing out, but you can take the largest version, which is a tannin, and then your microbiome can break off smaller flavonoids, each of which continues to do its job. And so, you know, research has shown, at least right now, as we've looked at this and spoken with the experts, you know, one of the most largest and stable polyphenol tannins is Cabratro Colorado. Right. So that is justification to continue our pursuit of protecting brains through the gut.
1: Totally agree. Uh, before we peel off and, and uh, potentially end up having just a quick GCP raw add-on here at the end, I did want to highlight one thing that you talked about, and that was uh, the glial cells and their regulation. And as you put it, when there aren't enough of the short-chain fatty acids— that oftentimes glial cells, and I can't remember, you said another compound, glial cells themselves can kind of run amok. They go a little too far, et cetera. There's been an increase, if I remember correctly, and this is going back 15 years, uh, in one of the most dangerous brain cancers being glioblastomas. So could it be possible, do you think, for the correlation causation is like the big phrase everybody wants to talk about, it, but it's just like, does something potentially lead to something else? Lack of good short-chain fatty acids helping regulate glial activity leading to glioblastoma because almost invariably, cancer almost always comes from over-replication from hyperagitated cells. And the metabolic rate becomes too much, they're having to do too much, and then suddenly... DNA transcription screws up. It, it turns into whatever it is. Do you think there could potentially be a link with the increase in glioblastoma diagnosis and poor short-chain fatty acid bioavailability really led to just bad diet selection and different things like that? Golly, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. know
2: enough about that. I, I don't and either. I've had friends... And friends' wives who unfortunately have passed of this. And yeah. That they didn't seem to be doing. They, in other words, that didn't seem like they were doing something. You could go, oh, if they just would have, this wouldn't have happened.
1: So. Well, and it's not something to point back and take that note. I mean, just, I guess more, it has to do with specifically here in the U.S. where lots of our trusted food supply has just been replaced with hyper, uh, hyper-inflammatory food ingredients, whether it happens to be seed oils, whether it happens to be a substitution from regular sugar to high fructose corn syrup, all of these things add up over time. And people who I regard as healthy, even, even me when I was younger before started really diving into this kind of stuff, I made food selections without really being cognizant of what was in my bread or what we bought on the aisle to make it home or it doesn't really matter. You feel like, well, I exercise, I do all these things, calories in, calories out, food pyramid, all of the stuff that you and I have talked about over time where it turns out the inverse. Somebody else had put something in our mind. I mean, our family ate country crock margarine when I was growing up in high school, but it turns out butter was always a a much better choice. I'm just saying that potentially if you are like Ken and I and in your family when you were growing up, you you didn't have this information. Maybe to help protect you and certainly your kids or your grandkids, get them choosing polyphenols, natural polyphenols, or doing natural polyphenol supplementation to see if these small things, whether it's just neurodegeneration or potential of cancers or whatever, maybe just incorporating good variety of polyphenols in addition with healthy meats is going to end up leading to a much lower incidence of disease. Cancer, reverse the trend right now. If you look at the trend, all the trends are going up. Be the be the point that drives that back down.
2: There was just a recent study that showed that uh, all cause mortality significantly decreased on those that adhere to a strict poly, to a strict Mediterranean diet. And once again, one of the main things is that they you take in a lot of polyphenols with the Mediterranean diet, yeah, including healthy proteins, fish, Wild. lamb, meat. I know. So, that wraps it up for the regular portion. Regular portion. Uh,
1: GCP Raw listeners, be sure and stay tuned. Of course, you know that we're going to transition straight into it without any kind of break, and you won't have any commercials. But for the rest of you who joined us on Rumble, Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere that you take in your podcast, thank you so much for being a part of the Gut Check Project. On behalf of Ken and I, please like and share. Please like and share. If you like the podcast, let us know about it. Check us out at uh, gutcheckproject.com. There you will find it. We, once again, like everybody else, updating a website – And be sure and send us messages. You can check out Gut Check Project Raw on Locals by just going to uh, locals.com and typing in Gut Check Project. There you can join, support the community, ask us questions, get more involved. And we'll, of course, answer your questions, which is what we're going to do here in the GCP Raw.
2: Yeah. And one last favor. So if you go to our Instagram, I think we even have a TikTok now or Facebook, you know, at, at Gut Check Project. The person that's putting those up, um, he gets really sad when people don't interact with the posts. He takes it very personal. So if, if you see any reels or anything, you know, just comment and smile because it's so hard to keep giving Paul enough um, of these flavonoids to keep his serotonin and dopamine up <laughs> whenever people don't comment on the reels. So please do that.
1: And if it his. makes you fun just to make fun of either Ken or I, please do that too. I don't
2: It makes Paul happy.
1: Yeah, he likes that a lot. (laughs) Thank you all so much. We're going to hop into Raw right now.
0: That's a wrap for this episode of the Gut Check Project, and we appreciate you for being a part of it. Be sure to follow us on your favorite platform for podcasts. You can find the GCP on Locals, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Rumble, and more. And you can always check out gutcheckproject.com to find all episodes and interact with the show. Tell your friends and family not to wait to get Gut Checked.